Listen to shoot the defense. It's unbelievable, Jeff. Hello, welcome to Shoot the Defense on FNX. I'm your host, Stel, and my guest this evening has coached at professional and collegiate level for over 30 years. He was the NASL Coach of the Year in 2016, having guided his Indy 11 side to the spring season title, going unbeaten in the process and reaching the championship final. Ladies and gents, it gives me great pleasure to introduce the new head coach of USL League One side, Chattanooga Red Wolves, and future Hall of Famer, Tim Hankinson. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you ever so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you and look forward to, to learning more about your show. And I, I have one request, ask the tough questions. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, well, Tim, I'll tell you, let's, let's talk about your early football memories. I mean, as far as I'm aware, you grew up in Manhattan and had regular kickabouts at Central Park. Now, how did you become interested in the game and who were your heroes growing up? Well, certainly uh, uh, going to a school that focused on soccer. We had a lot of European um, teachers, faculty, coaches, and uh, we had a German coach at one point who one day took the, the ball and rolled it up and balanced it on his laces, and from that point on, I've been fascinated with uh, what you can do with a ball. Um, Influence-wise, obviously, it was partially the era of the New York Cosmos in the 70s, so being at Randall's Island Stadium and watching Pelé's debut uh, live and in person and seeing the Beckenbauers and Carlos Albertos and Canaglias, all of these great names, uh, they were still at the, the peak and prime of their career. It was really quite a, a soccer collection of and phenomenon in the old NASL. So that got me hooked on the professional game. And even though I went to college uh, coaching ranks in the early years, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, transferring into the uh, professional ranks. I can understand. And I never got the chance to see Beckenbauer and Pelé live. Um, so you seeing what you've seen from a technical standpoint, who would you say was a better player? Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'll tell a quick story. I have a one of my former assistant coaches, a, a colleague of mine who played for the Belgian national team in that era. Um, you know, he um, he was a goalkeeper, and I asked him who were the most dangerous players he ever played against, and he said, "Well, in open space, it was Eusebio of Portugal. Mm -hmm. In in no space, it was Gerd Müller, the bomber of Germany." Mm -hmm. He said, you had a guy like Beckenbauer who told you exactly, he showed his cards and showed you exactly what he was planning to do, and there wasn't anything you could do to stop it. And he says, with Cruyff, you never knew what he was thinking, and then the element of, of creativity and surprise would, would catch you. So all of those players played in the uh, NASL uh, in that era and uh, all had different talents that, that uh, certainly in this day and time with the Zidans and and Cristianos and Messi's and all like that, they, they, they were in the same class as all of these players of, of today's era. Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what, you, you coached three university teams between 1980 and 1990, one of them being the Alabama A&M Bulldogs, who you guided to an NCAA semifinal, losing to eventual winners San Francisco, and the final defeat in overtime to Connecticut. Now, when you look back at those two campaigns, would you say you perhaps overachieved given it was your first head coach role? Well, you know, I was only 25 years old at the time. Wow. And at that time, Alabama A&M had been um, 
power in NCAA Division II, which is the second level of uh, the college ranks. When I went there, they they promoted it into the Division One, the top flight, with all the big-name universities. And, uh, you know, to get to the Final Four our first year, but you were up against in that Final Four Indiana, San Francisco, and Hartwick, which were three former national champions and, and big programs back then. And so I was amongst these uh, legends of the game trying to make, you know, uh, a, a positive step forward. And we lost in that semi-final, uh, but won the consolation the next day. Um, the next year, going all the way to the final against another big power, UConn, these were, were times that, for me, uh, um, were, were greatly challenging because I had never been an assistant coach, and therefore you didn't have the mentoring that you, I certainly would, would advise coaches to go through. Don't rush to, to be the boss yet. You know, learn from a good mentor and see what he does right, see, see the mistakes, learn from it, and, and develop your own style, but, but don't jump in. I had to make my decisions at a young age, and, and at that time, the, the game was rel- relatively new in, in this country, and so there weren't a lot of resources to, to guide you, but we had a very interesting group because Alabama A&M, uh, as you know, is a, a, a black American uh, university, and so our players... There were very few black athletes playing soccer at that time. They all were being drawn by the other sports. So we had to recruit in Nigeria, uh, Ethiopia, Jamaica, Bermuda, uh, Ghana. Um, so we had a very, very interesting international group. And at that time, you did not have age restrictions like you have now right. at the university level. And so I had players that were older than me, you know, by three or four years in some cases. But it was a very mature, talented group. We also had guys who had played for their senior national teams because at that time, even though they have professional football in Nigeria now, uh, at that time, the the league was not considered professional. So we could draw senior national players from these countries, and it was really quite a dominant team. So how did you get the older players to buy into your philosophy? Um. You know, I, I convinced them that stepping up to Division One was not going to be as easy as it was in Division Two, and uh, that only getting to the the Final Four is where they'll get the recognition that uh, they were hungry for. And uh, I said to do that, you know, is you're, you're going to have to put in double sessions in the preseason, something they had not done before. But, you know, our first game, we go out and we had a, a, a tremendous match. And, and that, you know, you have to have some success. You have to be a little bit lucky mm-hmm. for players to buy in that, hey, this is a good direction. This is going to make us better and, and, and let's follow this coach. Okay. So can you tell me how college soccer differs from club soccer? I mean, I, I assume you may have different personnel to work with every season because some players graduate or move to pro clubs. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, you know, the, the typical student is going to be there for four seasons for you. Um, one of the restrictive aspects of the university level is uh, you're only going to play about 18 to 20 games in a very short period of time, three months of the fall season. And that decides whether you get into the playoffs and, and fight for the championship or whether your season's over. The NCAA, who's the governing body of the sport, also dictates how many practice days you can have and how many spring games you can have and it's very restrictive so instead of getting to be a coach year-round it's it's almost a 
even though you're there full-time, you're really only coaching part-time. And that's very frustrating for someone like myself who wants to be on the field every day. So, you know, drifting towards the club scene allows players to really work at the game year-round uh, or working at the pro level uh, allows uh, a year-round experience for both coaching staff and for the players. And that's a, a, a the, the development is, is more accelerated there and it's a little bit more restrictive and slowed down at the college ranks. Having said that, in this country, the culture of going to a major university, competing for your your university, uh, uh, and the facilities that they've they've built, both on the men and women's side, uh, at the university level, sometimes uh, surpasses what you get at club or or the professional ranks. And uh, so it's still an exciting venue for for athletes to to choose from. Absolutely. So in that case, reaching the final in your second campaign must have been even more successful because of these changes, no? Well, they, they are, but, uh, you know, I eventually went on to Syracuse University and had six years there, and I got a call from a team in Iceland, and it was the first opportunity I had been offered to go to the professional side. And so I left the university game and moved to Iceland to, to coach in their second division there. And from there, coming back to the States, once I understood the makeup of a European club with a board of directors and and investors and shareholders, um, I started a team called the Charleston Battery mm-hmm. back in 1992 and tried to build it in the direction of uh, a European club. And to, to this day, I mean, that's over 20 years ago, uh, that club still is one of the premier franchises in the country. Absolutely. And we'll go into them in just a bit because I've got a couple of questions relating to that club, which uh, I've, uh, they're very close to me and I'll explain later. Um, you mentioned Syracuse University. I know you're at DePaul University as well. Were you expected to be as successful as you were at Alabama? Um, you know, that's the intent uh, by a athletic department to try and attract a coach that they feel has has a proven record that they can bring that experience uh, and and help grow their program in the right direction. Um, and and I we, we never achieved the same level as Alabama A&M, but... Um, there are a lot of things that, that guide your recruiting, how many scholarships you have uh, as compared to other schools, uh, what is the admission uh, standard uh, by one school versus another. And in Alabama and Syracuse, we're quite on different pages that way. And so uh, we had a lot more freedom to recruit who we wanted in, in Alabama and in Syracuse. It was much tougher to get. Um, you had to look for higher academic kids, uh, kids with a, a greater base of family wealth, because you didn't have full scholarships to to pay for everything, it was partial, and so but it was just a different puzzle that had to be put together. But we still had had success, winning records every year and winning the big Big East championship our first year, and so uh, there were still success uh, successful moments. Mm, fantastic. Well, you mentioned the the, the club in Iceland, UMF Tindastol. Uh, you became the first American to coach in Iceland. Now, it, it wasn't uncommon for British coaches to apply their trade in Scandinavia back then but how did this move come about for you? Uh, it's kind of an interesting one I was recruiting in the Cayman Islands wow. a national player for Syracuse University okay. um, and it, a, a team called FHAL which are the initials FH um, which is a first division pro team in Iceland was there on their preseason tour playing in a tournament and uh, I was staying at the same hotel property as the Icelandic team. And the team president and I got to know each other pretty well, hit it off, and stayed in touch and visited um, 
over the next couple of years uh, to see each other's project. And one day a club had come to him, Tendestall, and asked for a recommendation, and he recommended me. And the next thing I know, I was flying over for uh, a two, three-day interview, and uh, it was one of the more interesting interviews in my career because with a, a coat and tie on, they took me to a gymnasium uh, in the town that Tendestall was. There's only about 2,500 people, and the whole town was there. And they had their players on the, uh, the court and basically said, Tim, uh, can you coach them in front of us? And so wow. it was uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit of trial by fire to show them what, what you have and uh, didn't have anything planned. But, you know, in coaching, you, you never know day to day what you're going to have to work with all the time um, as players have injuries and issues. And uh, sometimes you have to be pretty good at uh, improvising. And that's how we got through that session. But they offered me a contract thereafter. Just a question on, on this audition that they gave you in front of everyone. <laughs> um, you're probably aware that the, the attitude towards uh, American football or American soccer in Europe is a bit snobbish. Uh, do you think that they, they did it to test you more than anything? I think uh, there's always uh, a coach is going to get tested. Um, even going back to Alabama a and I remember our very first training together and one of their, their senior Nigerian players striking a ball with uh, quite a bit of force directly at me and I had to react and control and it was like that was a test you know to to see if I was going to fumble and bumble or or whether I was a football person and I think that there's no question that in Iceland you were put on the spot to see to see what you've got to see whether you can hold up to all the eyes and and observations and naysayers and and so as a coach whether you're coaching in your own country or clearly, when you go abroad, um, you got to have tough skin, and you got to believe in in what you believe, and and be able to present that and find some success with it. Mm. So, would you say that, that was somewhat of a, an eye opening experience, or did you kind of know what to expect before you went out there? No, it was uh, more eye opening. I, I, when you're in a coat and tie, you don't expect to to uh, coach in your socks and <laughs> and with your your sleeves rolled up. So. Um, um, but, you know, I saw what was going on and, and uh, you know, everything's a learning curve and some of us get through learning curves slowly. And, and But the ones who survive in the game get through these moments very quickly. They recognize what's going on and get after it. Fantastic. So given your, your stint out there, what would you say you took most from that experience? Because I presume that the standard of coaching in Iceland was far different to, to the United States. Well, I mean, one of the first things you recognized was the toughness right. of players who live in that environment. I mean, um, you know, we started preseason in February, and snow is blowing every day sideways, and there are no fields to get on because they're all under, uh, you know, numerous feet of snow. And you go out to the beach, which is a big open area, and the sand is jet black because of the volcanic base of the island. You kick the sand, and not a grain moves. I mean, it is frozen solid. But you see these guys come out of, of our locker room gym and out to the beach and without hesitation, um, you know, they, they just get start going after it. Not a whole lot of time to stretch correctly because otherwise you'd freeze. <laughs> um, we had a couple of Americans over that, and they, they didn't last. The environment was, was uh, too difficult for them at that time. Um, I think the other thing you recognize in the, the, the country's football is there are countries that are very open-minded with many systems of play going on. 
you know, depending on the coach and, and the way the coach wants them to play and players that they've recruited, you know, some may play a 4-3-3 or 4-4-2 or different, different variations, um, you know, within the same league and, and country. But in Iceland at that time, everyone played the 3-5-2. If I introduced a different concept, um, even, even minor uh, adjustments, then everyone would really start to doubt um, that I knew what I was doing. They were very locked into that. I think now Iceland is much more open to different ideas, and we see them growing on the international level. And so that was uh, um, that's very exciting for them that they've progressed that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you also learn about infrastructure. At that time, there was only one field turf field, thermoheated, so that as far as you can see, there pounds of of white snow everywhere but here's this one green grass field with steam coming up from it and every team in the country has to go there if they want to get on a a a normal surface since that time more fields have been um, structured more indoor halls uh that where you can play seven aside eight aside and we've seen the country grow before it was like when i was there it was a six-month football season and now it's it's you know, more of an 11 month. And like I said, you see the development at their international level uh, having success. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the 352 system. I seem to remember the Danes having that system in Euro 92. Germany are renowned for a 352 sweeper system. Um, it's, it's, it's quite common in Scandinavia and in that part of Europe. Do you think that the 352 was influenced by? Uh, possibly the Ajax who had the 3-4-3 system or 4-3-3 or even the Germans? Well, I think clearly Ajax influenced the triangle in the middle of the field is trying to play two attacking, one holding, two defending, one attacking, maybe one defending, one holding, um, excuse me, one defending, one attacking and one kind of a motor, a possession player. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of variations that you can make adjustments on the fly in the game by just rotating that uh, triangle and, and finding advantages from it. Uh, a lot of countries uh, have struggled with Barcelona and Spain with the short passing. Of the, the, and the, one of the ways I think the world has tried to compete with them is by dropping one forward into the midfield to thicken up the numbers there. But the, the world is starting to go back to uh, a second forward. There are very few Drogba's or David Villas mm-hmm. that you can live alone up there, either through strength or intelligence. Um, and so the three-five-two allows you to have the advantages of the triangle, but it also allows you to support two forwards that can play in tandem uh, off of each other. I think one of the limitations of the system, though, is that uh, it's we say three at the back, but it's really five because the wing midfielders uh, drop all the way to protect the flanks of those three defenders so those three defenders don't get spread over the width of the field. And so when we say 3-5-2, it's a little bit deceiving because it's really defending with five uh, defenders at the back. And I think I prefer four because uh, I think four is enough to to have balance and security uh, in the defense without dropping your wing midfielders all the way alongside uh, the group of three. So there's strength and weaknesses to every system. just depends on the personnel you've got. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, earlier you mentioned Charleston Battery, who you co-founded with Tony Backer, um, and this is a side that we know all about because you know Mike Kelleher and Mike Arnhauser, they, they, they've appeared on the show. Mike Kelleher is a good friend of ours. Um, you quite literally managed the club, didn't you? I, mean, I understand you did the admin and you worked hard in the background to generate revenue while coaching the team. 
Right. I mean, uh, initially, when I came back from Iceland, I sent uh, Francisco Marcos, who was commissioner of the USISL, which is now the USL, uh, a check to secure the Charleston territory. We developed a logo and, uh, you know, image of the team with uh, its its stripes and cross cannons. Um, one of the first players I recruited was Mike Anhauser. He was, as his coach called him, uh, the piano carrier of the University of Indiana's program that won a national title. And Mike came there as a, a center midfielder to play the, the defensive midfielder, eventually became an assistant coach, and then head coach, been over there. I think he just celebrated his 25th fifth year. But having to wear so many hats, even though we found shareholders that all made contributions, uh, both financially and, and in, in the operation of the club, uh, these are all businessmen that had to run their companies. And so I had to play general manager, salesman, sell sponsorships, range travel, uh, clean the, the, the bibs after practice, uh, help hang the field board signs before and after games, and coach the team. So it's um, it was quite a, a exhausting process. Fortunately, those clubs at that level now have full front offices, and, and coaches get to be coaches, and uh, um, it's a much better world. Fantastic. Well, in your first two seasons, the club reached the playoffs in the final four. Now, you, you must have had some sort of magic wand because you've done extremely well at clubs in your first couple of seasons. What's your secret? Well, just in the methodology and building, you know, uh, not, nothing due to football people out there, but looking to build your spine first, make your investments down the middle from your goalkeeper, center back, center midfielder, creative player and, and striker. And then be very uh, clear in the style that they play. Uh, for example, I had a Valderrama in Major League mm-hmm. Soccer from Columbia, and the first thing I noticed about him was he, that if he had players around him that wanted the ball played to their feet rather than moving without the ball, that it really limited his game. So I had to, to change Tampa, change Colorado when he was with me uh, to find players that, that moved without the ball because then we, we reap the reward of, of his great passes. So when I put a team together, building the, the, the spine and then looking at the styles and saying what kind of players are going to complement uh, off of this. Um, and, and that helps, you know, just put, get the team off to a good start because the puzzle is, is put in place correctly and, and these are players that should complement each other on the field. And then uh, working on uh, the message, you know, the, the system, the, the, the ideas, the, um, where we want to defend, how we're going to cover each other. Where do you recover to? Just the concepts of the game to making sure we have good understanding. And when you do that, you're going to start winning games and the players are going to buy in and you're going to have uh, success along the way. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I really want to pick your brain about the Nike Project 40, a program you created with the aim of developing youngsters both on the pitch and academically. Now, was this project as successful as you wanted it to be? Um, I think the first year, the group was a very brave group of young men. They're all about 18 years old, uh, the majority of them playing for the under-20 national team, mm-hmm. uh, coached by Jay Hoffman at that time. But understand, when there is no history, uh, there, there's, there was no Project 40, there were no young pro contracts where a, a player and his family who are assessing, do we hold on to that full athletic scholarship and get a four-year education at a major university and play for them, which is a measurable thing because um, it, it's been happening for, you know, half a century. 
or do we go to this, we, we give that up because you lose your eligibility for university and for scholarship? And do we give that four-year education up and sign this contract to go on a professional playing path, hoping it works out? Because there is no history to determine. You can't point at this guy or that guy who went through it years before and, and had success or, or not have success. So the first group of signings, I won't say was the absolute best young players in the country, but they were the most willing and bravest to be the first group. And uh, these guys were assigned their MLS teams. They would train during the week with their MLS team, and then they would all fly into a different city um, on a Thursday where I would meet them because uh, I was the coach of that first team. And um, we would train. We would play a game Friday night in the league, uh, which was the second division. Uh, pro level, and then we would travel to a second city and play Sunday, and then they would all fly back after that game to their clubs, um, getting at least you know a game and a half under their belt. Some players had to play too because of the numbers. Um, we never had 40 uh, players; it was really more around 20. Um, and then the the key and part of that league experience was to teach them to be independent, know how to travel, and also you have to learn to play for three points. You know, you have to be in a standings fighting for a playoff spot. These are You can't just play exhibitions all, all over the place. Uh, and as these players got their games, they grew and eventually uh, stayed with their clubs at the request of their MLS coaches because they could see the improvement and they would start to get playing time there and we would start to bring in other players to take their place. The other part of their development was to wrap programs around them that would um, accelerate their growth. So... Sunil Galati, our former U.S. Soccer Federation president, uh, at that time was um, a de deputy commissioner over the player department. When he signed players for major leagues, some of the big names like Roberto Donadoni from AC Milan mm -hmm. uh, or Chris Woods from Sunderland um, or Richard Goff from, from Rangers Football Club, that he would always make a part of that, that contract and transfer that they would take on in the off major leagues offseason, uh, eight weeks for two players to come in and that they would be housed and fed and trained with them full-time um, so that they could have that that experience and uh, and grow from that. So one of my off-season projects was to escort these players uh, overseas and to make sure that over a few days that everything looked okay. And I remember one day we end up at Rangers ready to meet Walter Smith who had won 10 you know, Scottish championships, and he walked in where the coaches were. He had just come from a shareholder meeting, and he had been released by the club because the shareholders were very happy with his results in Scotland, but his uh, uh, success in Europe had been limited, and that's where the shareholders felt the growth of the club had uh, not achieved what they had expected to achieve. So sometimes you throw these young men into a situation where suddenly – the, the guy who was supposed to be their leader, uh, the, the manager of the club, suddenly is out, and now the coaches are scurrying around. And uh, player, But they, these are lessons that players have to learn because the game is always changing. So, so, Tim, tell me what you would say to people who feel that possibly this project was created to possibly deter European sides from taking the young American talent and also the MLS has made a lot of money from player sales that have come from this generation. Right. Well, I mean, the, the first player that comes to mind that came through Project 40 
when I was coaching them was uh, Timmy Howard. Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly he was attached to the New York uh, Metro Stars of Major League and had done so well. Uh, Carlos Caroche had been coaching New York, and when he went to Manchester United, recommended that they, uh, they, they buy him and bring him to Manchester United. So um, Timmy went for $5 million, and all of a sudden the owners of Major League's eyes popped open because they said, wow, that's one player. We, we can start doing that kind of business if we get into the development business. And that's kind of what uh, opened the minds of ownerships that we needed to continue to invest in uh, player development. Uh, I think up to that sale, the owners were, were not so keen on the investment in player development. They thought they could just get the players out of the college ranks at draft time and, and build their rosters that way. But I think Timmy's sale to Man U um, clearly opened everyone's eyes and therefore the, the project expanded. I think it's fair to say that a few of those players that came from this project were arguably involved in U.S. soccer's most successful times. So, I mean, you've got the players like um, Clint Dempsey, as you mentioned, Tim Howard. I know right. Freddie Adu didn't really uh, turn into the player that they, they expected him to be. But, you know, Demarcus Beasley, um, possibly Altidor. These players, I, I know from the, the latest generation of, of U.S. soccer players, why do you think the national team has kind of gone backwards? Well, I think... Um a lot of countries, um, you know, have high points with a generation of players and then can take a dip. I mean, even Germany um, has done this. And, you know, they it, it kind of gives you the opportunity as a, as a nation to re-examine yourself as far as your player development and look at the strengths and weaknesses that have developed in the country. You know, Germany and England as two examples, have used a, a company out of Belgium, Double Pass, to come in and analyze all of the strengths and weaknesses of all of your levels um, and uh, had to make training models that all of the Bundesliga 1 and Bundesliga 2 teams had to follow, mandatory. And if you did not follow this and hit the markers, because they would send back evaluators every year to make sure that you're following the correct path, um, then you could lose your academy status and you could lose your Bundesliga status. So the Deutsche Fußballbund strong-armed their clubs and leagues to say this is what you have to do because if we don't change, we're falling behind. And the next thing you know, they're winning a World Cup again. Um, the U.S. has really not had these type of self-evaluations uh, done. Um, and I think it's all been a bit of a guessing game. And this country is so wide uh, spread as far as what's going on in the south of the U.S., uh, what's going on in the northeast of the U.S., what's going on the west coast, what's going on Midwest, that everyone's been doing their own thing, and maybe we found moments of success by by luck um, rather than by plan and design. So the U.S. has done the same thing. They've hired the double pass group. They evaluated all of the academies for a year, and now there are um, there's a path to follow. And every year, assessors come in from Europe who are technical directors, have experience in, in the, the Dutch leagues and the Belgian leagues who have always produced very high-level, world-class talent. And they come in to evaluate all these academies to make sure that everyone's headed in the right direction. Now, we're not going to know the result of this probably for 10 years. Because if you start training a 10-year-old right now uh, the way you want, 
you know, he's not going to be able to really start influencing national team play until he's in his 20s and really won't get to, to his prime as a player until, you know, he's around 26, 27. So we're not going to see results right away, but we feel like this path is going to end up taking us to a better direction. We tried some of this to uh, try to win the World Cup in South Africa. And we got to South Africa, but we didn't have the success that we wanted. And so it's, it's constantly reassessing where you're at. Uh, the U.S. has a problem with what style are we going to play. This national team co- coach comes in and is using more of a, a Latin-based player. Another national team comes in, and it's all European-based players. So we have sometimes challenges that are greater than, let's say, Spain where, or Brazil, where everyone generally plays a similar style. And uh, so we're having to formulate, and we're, we're going through a, a self-evaluation, putting a new plan in place, and hopefully uh, in the upcoming World Cups we'll, we'll be back in the game and, and having success again. Mm. We mentioned the, the Deutsche Fußballbunds. Jürgen Klinsmann, he, he was in charge of the US men's national team for five and a half years. Um, he was sacked with uh, nearly two years of his contract remaining. Um, you know, he oversaw defeats against Mexico, Costa Rica, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Where do you think it went wrong for Jurgen? Well, I think, you know, a lot of this has to be, uh, you use the word patience or impatience. Um, I know that Jurgen philosophically used a lot of these non-qualifying games and, and events like the Gold Cup and otherwise to test players all the time. Uh, because that's a lot of uh, what he experienced in, in Germany. Um, don't be afraid to, to test players and, and to give them the experience, knowing you may sacrifice a result uh, here and there. But I think the U.S. mentality uh, with its sponsors is so driven towards having to have success uh, to, to prove that we're relevant that that would lead you to believe that that you need to stay more with a senior group. And even that senior group is eventually going to burn itself out and you're going to go through a stage of of starting all over again. So I think his philosophy is probably pretty normal in in Germany. Um, But I think that there was just impatience to get results. And um, uh, I think he he just didn't have a chance to, to play out his master plan. You've had spells in India and Jamaica, primarily focusing on player development. From a technical standpoint, what would you say are the main differences between players from both nations? Um, you know, the development aspect was maybe a secondary project. Uh, these were teams playing in their professional leagues, uh, top division. So our players were uh, senior uh, professionals. Um, I would say that... that um, Jamaica relies too much on its athleticism. They've always felt like we have world-class sprinters and there's no reason we can't just uh, blow past the the opposition. And they've not spent enough time on uh, the possession of their game and and the habits that that they have uh, throughout the Caribbean um, uh, in and around in front of their goal. There's, you know, just undisciplined when it comes to too much ball watching. Um, you know, not staying with your man, not challenging properly. Uh, and so they'll give up a goal that most countries might not. Um, and, you know, this goes back to Dwight York from Trinidad. I mean, if you hadn't gotten Dwight York out of Trinidad at age 16 over to Aston Villa, 
um, maybe his game would still be very Caribbean, um, you know, uh, you know, with those kind of habits, and and that would not have been able to transfer, you know, three four years later, age wise, uh, to England without England coaches looking and saying he's too raw. Um, so Jamaica's too fast for itself, and I think Theodore Whitmore, the national team coach, is starting to get them to understand that we need to lock down defensively. We can use speed to close down opponents, use it from a defensive standpoint, and sit back and use speed to counter a little bit. With India, India um, wasn't fast enough. Um, They have to rely very much on um, recruiting international players, mostly African players, to bring in elements to the game that the Indian player typically doesn't have. They're they're not a, uh, a player that has great endurance, nor do they like um, doing endurance work, uh, but short, quick work is really more uh, where their style of play has to um, to grow and 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 develop that style. Um, they're intelligent players, tricky. I mean, they have good feet. There's no question there. But size-wise, their country is very split. Um, whereas in Jamaica, you've got some some like an Andy Lowe is you know six foot three as a center back. He's you know is a tremendously great size athlete um in the southern half of india uh the the stature of of the indian player is very small um you have to go up near china to the northern part of the country uh near shylong and in other words that the the size the the structure of the uh indian player changes their features change they almost look uh chinese but you'll find athletes that are you know six feet to six three uh, playing the game up there, and so uh, they have different challenges uh, than Jamaica. But uh, those are the interesting experiences of getting to to work in these countries. Fantastic. We've got a couple of questions about your tenure at Colorado Rapids. I mean, I know it started slow, but three consecutive playoff appearances, impressive attendances, and players appearing in best eleven squads pretty much prove how much progress the club made with you at the helm. Now, during that period. The battle for the MLS Cup was kind of like a tug of war between the San Jose Earthquakes and LA Galaxy. Now, how difficult was it for the likes of Colorado Rapids to break through? Well, you know, whether it was Tampa Bay Mutiny in Major League, which I took uh, when they were 3-12 and 12 in the middle of the season. I mean, their season was done. And the next year, we turned them into a playoff team. The same thing with Colorado. They were at the bottom of the league when I took over. Very depleted roster. Um... I remember asking our general manager, well, where's this guy? Where's that guy? Oh, we got rid of him. You know, I said, well, wait a minute, they have value. And so we had to rely on trades and drafting and, and recruiting players. For example, John Spencer, mm-hmm. who had played at uh, Chelsea before mm-hmm. and Motherwell and all like that. We recruited from Scotland, uh, Daryl Powell um, and, uh, and others out of, of Europe. Um, we were able to take advantages of clubs that were struggling with... Um, uh, certain personalities. For example, Tampa had Carlos Valderrama. They were having trouble working with him. I had a great relationship with him. We made a trade. Uh, they were happy to get him off his books. I was happy to have him <laughs> to produce assists and, and grow our goal count. Um, there were times when Tampa and Miami Fusion folded that we had top draft picks. Uh, two of those draft picks, I picked up a player out of Miami who was playing right back, Pablo Mastriani, and turned him into a defensive midfielder. He played in the, World, in the next 
two World Cups for USA at that position. And we also picked up a 19-year-old um, coming off a, a broken leg, Kyle Beckerman, who eventually played for the national team right. as the defensive midfielder, and he understudied under Pablo Mastriani. We also found uh, players through um, our reserve squad, Nat Borchers, who had a great career at, at um, uh, Real Salt Lake and then Port became the face of the Portland Timbers. So we had to be a little bit more creative and innovative in how we got players. But as you said, as the first year, we weren't able to make the playoffs. We were having to reconstruct the roster. And uh, the next three years, uh, we were in the playoffs. And one of those years, probably a goal away from going to the MLS Cup uh, in a home and away with uh, with LA Galaxy, winning our first our game at home and, and then falling short down there. And the goal difference uh, sent them instead of us. So almost there, but um, that's the bounce of the ball. Absolutely. Well, mate, I, I can't not ask about Carlos Valderrama. This player was one of my idols growing up as a kid. You know, what, what was he like to work with? You know, you, we've mentioned some great names today. Um, I would say there are very few world-class stars where the game is dictated, the style changes when that player is on the park. Um, for example, Cristiano Ronaldo is one of the best players in the world, but I don't think the game style changes. It's just dynamic when he's on the ball. Mm. But the style of his team doesn't necessarily change. I think if you go back to the early 70s with a guy like Beckenbauer going from central midfield and developing the sweeper position, uh, his play and the way he played it out of that position dictated the style of Germany at that point. Carlos Valderrama, clearly, in my estimation and experience, is the one player who completely changes the style of the way you play. Everything comes in and out of him all of the time. And... His, his desire to never have to, to defend, so therefore let's never give the ball away, you know, set a precedent that you only see in Spain these days. Um, but Carlos very much was of that mentality. And, uh, you know, as, a, as a, a player, you try to, I mean, as a coach, you try to teach the player something. As a, a coach, there's no question I, I learned from him. But I think the thing that, again, you recognize what do you what do you bring as a coach to a world class star? Um, you have to look, look and study their game and say what kind of players do I need to allow him to do what he does best? And uh, we are able to do that with a Senegalese national team player, Mamadou Diallo, in Tampa, where he became an, uh, the top scorer in the league back then. With Carlos being the top assist guy, it was a great one-two punch, and just putting the right people around him and. Um, but Carl, Carlos, for me, was was marvelous to work with. Fantastic. Well, Tim, let's talk about your latest venture, the Chattanooga Red Wolves. Um, do you see parallels between the inception of Charleston Battery and Red Wolves? Absolutely. Whenever you, you know, when a coach goes in somewhere, he is usually replacing a former coach who's probably been fired because the job wasn't well done. And you're usually going in um, to a mess to clean up and then trying to reconstruct and find the positives and add things. But normally you're only adding four or five things a year. Um, Charleston was a, uh, a brand new club. So just like Chattanooga, you had no players, um, no coaching staff, uh, no scouting department. You basically had a, uh, a blank canvas and you had to find that first signing that you start building off of trying to create a, a, a 
great uh, picture of, of the things to come. Because even from a front office standpoint, you know, when you don't have a player, you, you have very little to sell. You're selling air, as they say. And mm-hmm. you get that first player, and, and now you're, you've got his face out there, and, and that leads to the next signing of the next. So having gone through that process before, and I went through that with San Antonio Scorpions at the NASL, it was a brand-new club, I've, I have some experience in starting from day one with a blank canvas. And uh, so it's been fun because you, you have the memory of how you did it here, how you did it there. Uh, there's no mess to clean up. There may be next year <laughs> a mess to clean up, depending on how it all works out. But um, it's it's a fun way to uh, to work at the game, uh, putting a first team in place. I guess that's what makes the Manchester United job even more difficult when you had someone like Sir Alex Ferguson there leaving and then David Moyes taking over. It wasn't really a mess. He kind of made it a mess. <laughs> well, that coaches can do that too. You know, we can clean them up and we can make them. But... Uh, um, you know, and there's still a mess there. So it's yeah. uh, it's a, a, a difficult challenge in coaching sometimes whether you have the ability to turn a team. And and even though these are blank slates, like I said, in Colorado and Tampa, uh, we had a crisis when we were there. I mean, walking in to a, a roster that wasn't functioning, uh, having to make trades, and and um, you know, it, it affects a lot of people's lives because you're. You're, you're finishing a practice and then calling a player in and saying, that house you bought, you're going to need to put it up for sale because we're shipping you out. And another player is, is coming in hoping that that improves your fortunes. And sometimes it doesn't improve things. Sometimes it drastically does. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Pablo Mastriani and, and Valderrama and Kyle Beckerman, these are all guys that were, were difference makers, and, and that changed the... Uh, the future of Colorado. Yeah. I think it's a testament to your career and your ability because you'd think that a new club would bring in uh, a much, much younger uh, manager or head coach because they've got new ideas and whatnot, but you seem to have evolved as the game has uh, progressed. You're not stuck in your, in your way, so to speak. So you've kind of adapted to the way that the game has changed and you're open to new suggestions as well. So I think that's, that's credit to you. Well, I'll often bring in an assistant coach who's been a former player, Mm. uh, who's closer to the players. Um, uh, This year, we've brought in uh, my captain from Indy 11 of the NASL, uh, Colin Falvey, who was also a former captain of Charleston Battery. He's Mm. played in India. Um, You know, he he has world experience from Ireland. So him being a younger, trying to get his career off as a coach uh, assistant uh, keeps my mind fresh also. You know, he's able to to have a closer pulse to the locker room and, and you know, he shares thoughts and, and I'm always open to that. In the end, as a coach, you hope that your experience, it gets better each year so, because in the end you have to be the one who makes the final decision whether it's in agreement or not. Um, you know, we all try to, to take pride as coaches over the years in mentoring uh, people or former players that are having success. And, you know, guys like Caleb Porter played for me uh, Jason Kreiss, who had been had great success, won a championship at Real Salt Lake, went on to uh, uh, New York FC uh, down in Orlando, and I talked to Jason after things didn't work out in his last stop, and I, you know he was doubting himself a little bit, and I said, you know, you were a better coach today because of that experience, and so even though everyone tries to judge uh, that you've lost your touch or you didn't have a, a successful run. Um, the fact is, if, as long as you look at it and learn from it, 
you are a stronger coach with more experience, more ready to make the right decisions and move in the right direction now than you would have been five years ago and otherwise. So, you know, as I turn 64 this year, um, I'm a better coach than when I was 50, when I was 40, when I was 35 or back at Alabama and when I was 25. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Well, a couple of things before I let you go, Tim. Um, as far as I'm aware, the club has recruited 11 players so far, seven of whom have USL experience. So who should we keep an eye on? I know you mentioned a couple, but is there anyone in particular that we should really be looking at? Well, I, I think if you look uh, up top, there's a familiar face, an Irishman, uh, Eamon Zayed, who in Indy 11 was my top scorer back-to-back years. And yet he needs, stylistically, just like we were saying with Valderrama, he needs a certain type of player mm-hmm. playing next to him in a twin striker system. And we have a young Argentinian, uh, Juan Mare, who has been a part of the Real Salt Lake Monarchs uh, championship uh, team. That's six foot one, very active, the kind of guy that's a handful for defenders, and that's when Eamon um, gets to drift away because he's a bit of an old-school number nine poacher that just needs to be forgotten about for that moment, and then he's in the right place uh, to finish the, the moment off. Um, we have a Brazilian, uh, Ualefi, who had been with Swope Park when they went to the championship at the championship level um, and played for uh, Mark Dos Santos, who's now the new uh, Vancouver Whitecaps coach. Um, very stuck-in defensive midfielder, but with Brazilian feet. I think he'll be... Exciting, and then I, I have a player that I brought from Jamaica, who abs- actually is from Ghana. So he's not played in this country yet, but he's a center back and was a tremendous center back against the kind of speed and quickness that is in the Red Stripe League down in Jamaica. So I I really look forward to seeing how he'll do and in, in the United States this year. Fantastic. Well, one more thing before I let you go. Um, what do you make of the USL rebrand, and does it need? a promotion relegation system for it to gain more credibility? Well, you know, if you look at, uh, for example, Major League will probably never go Mm. relegation promotion because the commitment to the national sponsors and TV markets, they they can't afford to lose a New York in a given year or Mm. an L.A. or a a D.C. United uh, because they're in a a slumping uh, stage of of their franchise. And all of those teams have had years that they probably would have been, you know, relegated. So Major League probably won't go that direction. They need to be able to ensure that those markets are secure for sponsors. And um, But the USL presents a interesting opportunity because the, there are two economic models. There's the championship model and there's the League One model. And um, it allows, for example... Richmond kickers who have been around for 25 years playing at the Division II level to drop into, it's like they requested to be relegated because they think financially it will stabilize their club uh, in a much more functioning way. You also look at philosophically teams like Toronto 2, MLS teams, and uh, Orlando City B, who have decided to go with a slightly younger model of, of player development, and they think... Uh, whereas maybe playing in the championship league might be too tough of a task to find success, that in league one they may be better. And I think because there's already clubs you know, positioning themselves to move up or move down, right now it's an application process, but I think it's clearly on the verge to, to test uh, promotion relegation. Fantastic. Well, Tim, 
It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you ever so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. I mean, this has been a massive learning curve for me, and I'm sure it's the same for our listeners. You're, you're a fountain of knowledge, sir. You're just another nice way to, to saying you've been around too long. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've enjoyed your questions. Thank you very much. And certainly, uh, anytime you want me to come back on, I'll be more than glad to. Oh, it'll be an absolute pleasure. And good luck for the, the coming season. I'm sure it'll be it's an exciting project for you. Yes, we're looking forward to it. We kick off uh, February 1st. And first game is March 29th down in Dallas against Dallas FC. Uh, so very exciting way to start against a major league uh, oriented franchise and and then uh, a long season ahead fantastic well Tim again thank you ever so much for your time and I look forward to talking to you again alright all the best thank you very much have a great weekend a great uh, Christmas yes you too thank you very much and, Take and a great new year thank you you too alright right, Tim Take care. Cheers. Well, that, ladies and gents, was Tim Hankinson. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Wow. As I said, fountain of knowledge. Absolutely mind-blowing. I'm actually lost for words. Um, We're on Twitter at ShootTheFence. Please feel free to give us a follow. If you've got any questions regarding the show, if you want me to ask Tim anything else, I can do that. Not a problem. Um... For all our new listeners, if you enjoyed this show, we've got plenty of interviews, plenty of content. We're on iTunes. Give us a subscribe. Leave a comment. Leave a review. We could really, really do with it. Unfortunately, we had some issues with our previous provider, but we've got a new RSS feed. We're back in business. So please write a review and leave us a rating, hopefully five stars. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Also, visit our host, the FNX Network. Visit the website, fnx.network. You will find not just our shows, you will find Sofa Sports News, you'll find Bros Talking Soccer, Three in Midfield, Footy Says, DND Footy Factory, Talking Balls, a whole bunch of football-related podcasts. But that's not it. You've got entertainment, you've got gaming, you've got tech shows, wrestling, you name it. The FNX Network is the fastest growing independent organic network. I am telling you this from now. You visit this website, fnx.network, you will not be disappointed. I guarantee it. We're also on Patreon, so if you feel like donating and helping the cause, um, I'm uploading some old shows that aren't even on iTunes um, when we were a bit raw, shall, shall we say. Uh, so yeah, visit patreon.com forward slash shoot defense. Um, yeah, and visit StealthSecretSource.co.uk for your betting tips. 87% success rate so far this season. Can't go wrong. So yeah, that's it for us this week, guys. Until next time, have a great Christmas. Be safe, please. Um, I'm not just saying this. You know, People like to get excited and drink and all that kind of stuff, which is great. Enjoy the festivities, but just be safe and behave yourselves and enjoy the new year. We'll be back very, very soon because... The Premier League's back at the weekend. Until next time, take care.